I actually think the issue facing the church right now most broadly is that the church as communal, even institutions, even as denominations, is depressed. Hmm. That we have to re... It is a time where we have to kind of represent an identity and we can't keep up. You're listening to New Time Religion, a podcast featuring Dr. Andy Root, produced by me, Derek Tronsgaard. And in this first season of the show, we're telling the story of how the church went from being the center of life and society to where it is today, as it's pushed further and further out to the margins. Now, in our last episode, we explored how the church was profoundly changed when Western society moved from a medieval world full of enchantment and magic and mystery to the modern world of rational, disenchanted logic. But after the dust had settled, the Western world was ready for another big shift. But this time, the change wasn't about the world or how we see it. Instead, it was a change in the way that we see ourselves. It was, according to author and social theorist Charles Taylor, an arrival of a new age, the age of authenticity. You are special. And that's true. You're the only person who is exactly like you. So in a way, you've already won in this world because you're the only one who can be you. The things you do are always a little bit different from anybody else. And that's the way it's supposed to be. You are special. If you watched Mr. Rogers as a kid, you may not have noticed how revolutionary he was. After all, he was just this kind, wholesome man on PBS that taught us life lessons while wearing comfy sweater vests. But in a lot of ways, Fred Rogers really was a harbinger of the age of authenticity. And those very words, you are special, they encapsulate what this new era is all about. Now here's the truth. Before the age of authenticity, you really weren't that special. In fact, for most of human history, you were born to fit into a mold. You were born to fill a slot and to be a cog in the wheel. And really, your life was laid out for you, and you had little or no choice in the matter. Your race, your gender, your social class, your religious identity, your national identity, your political identity, even whether or not you received basic freedoms and protections under the law, everything about who you were was predetermined. Rules norms, expectations, they all forced you into a conforming existence, and you had no choice in who you were. You did not choose your identity. But then, it all changed. And as Charles Taylor points out in his work, German thinkers in the 18th and 19th century, they struggled with this cold, hard rationality. And soon they started to question the whole system. They wondered if maybe, just maybe, your identity could actually be something that you could decide for yourself. And maybe that quest to decide your identity for yourself, to find out who you really were, that's the thing that could give your life purpose and meaning. Here's Andy. These Germans, particularly because they're kind of, they're less than in the kind of whole late 18th century, 19th century kind of conception 
pretty much 18th century, I guess, 18th century kind of conception of, of Europe and of culture. Like there, Germany is like the backwaters, dirty place. I mean, now it's the greatest economy in the EU. But right. um, at the time, it was like, uh, you know, German, what, what good could come out of Germany, really, was the kind of, especially the thought of the French. And so then you get all these German thinkers who end up setting the terms for the great German revolution in, in, in thought, really, that that form this kind of romantic spirit. Um, and particularly, this is, again, long story longer, this is where um, a thinker named um, uh, Johann Herder comes about. And Johann Herder is very important to Taylor because he's very important to Isaiah Berlin. But Johann Herder had a breakthrough by saying that um, that we had to actually honor the differences between cultures, where the kind of enlightenment move of rationality was to try to find the rational system that all cultures should assimilate to. And Herder was like, no, 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 yeah, no. That was manifest destiny, yeah, right? Yeah, in some ways, yeah, yeah. for sure. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like that kind of justifies what happens in this country of wiping the people off the white man's burden. Right, yeah, and, that, and, yeah. And things like that. And so, but uh, uh, Herder is kind of like, no, 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 that, that we have to respect that there's unique ways of being in each cultural perspective. So he has this assertion that um, that leads into and is really the DNA that's, that brings us all the way into our own time and into what Taylor calls the ethic of authenticity. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of other things that have to happen to get us here, but the ethic of authenticity is that no other human being should tell another human being how to live their life. That every human being has a right to define for themselves what it means to be human. And I think over the last decade and a half, we've really double down on that mm -hmm. and i think social media particularly has become a place where we we really double down on that so long story longer about fred rogers and mr rogers is that i think that what the ethic of authenticity or being in the age of authenticity does is it makes your own individual experience and how you make sense of your own individual life of utter value and actually of utter attention for you. Like that should be what your attention is mainly on. How do I uniquely found my way of being me? And I think uh, Fred Rogers affirmed that. And a la Taylor, there are some really good things with that. Like, there yeah. are some really good gains we get with that. And I think what Rogers actually does, it makes him more profound than I think people give credit for, is he finds ways of upholding the goods of the age of authenticity without falling into some of its downsides, particularly like the eclipse of grace, where, well, we can't talk about grace or sin anymore because well i mean those could hurt people's feelings or those could um or we're about something else those are old perspectives where mr rogers actually still holds on to a sense that reality is ruptured that sadness is a real thing that we have to name that sadness and that we actually what what he does i think one of the downsides of the age of authenticity is going to lead to just a hyper individualism you know, just an absolute hyper-individualism. And while, fr while Fred Rogers upholds this kind of sense that you and your individual feelings are important and should be named, he also wants to say you need others to be there for you. You need others. You need some kind of discourse and conversation. So he creates a space for children to actually express their emotions. And I think that's what kind of Taylor wants to get at there. You are special. You get to decide for yourself who you are, and nobody else can tell you how to live your life. That's great. That's awesome. That's wonderful. You are free, but there's a catch. Because before your identity was perpetuated through society, it really wasn't up to you. But now, that responsibility to decide who you are 
it's in your hands. And now, in order to construct your identity, you actually have to do something about it. You need others to see you in a way that wasn't demanded in the old system. You need others to recognize you and your chosen identity. And the honest truth is that this takes some work. So one of the one of the excesses of the age of authenticity is it does say that you alone get to pick your identity mm-hmm. or you alone get to construct your identity. Well, okay, there's some freedom in that. But I mean one question is can that really work that way? How does, how does that how does that really work? And it doesn't really work because what we realize is that even if you somehow have the illusion that you went into your room you went in your room and then you closed your eyes and then you said, okay, this is my identity. Then you wrote it out on a piece of paper as if you would do this. And then, But then what do you do? What do you do after that? Well, what you have to do to make sure that you have that identity or what you're, you're, you're compelled to do is you have to broadcast that identity. Because you need people to affirm it you need, to give it value. Right. You only yes. have an identity in some kind of level of discourse and conversation. So at some point you need someone to give you, well, the word Taylor is, is you need someone to recognize that identity. Yeah. And so there needs to be some kind of recognition of that identity. And so this moves us into what he calls, which I think, oh my gosh, I think this is just such such an issue in our time that we enter into what he calls the politics of recognition, where it actually becomes really important in what, what becomes almost a way I form meaning in my world is for you to recognize me or for me to get recognition, and that this becomes almost the new currency. Um, and it's not, and almost that becomes more important than anything else. Have you seen the documentary on Netflix yet? Um, Fire Festival? Yes! How did yes. you know I was going there? Because, well, we, we tend to watch the same things, we do. but uh, yeah, it's yeah. kind of on the zeitgeist right now. I mean, it's... It's yeah, everywhere. It, it's amazing. I watched. I, I I stayed up super late two nights ago. Yeah, and it just it blew my mind. It blew my mind too. But it all is this kind of sense of when when we have this sense that identity broadcasting identity is the most important thing, and the winners of the cultural whatever the cultural zeitgeist or whatever are those who can kind of win recognition. You can get to this point of not needing anything to be real other than the kind of illusions that you present. And the Fire Festival is a really interesting example of that. So, the Fire Festival. If you have no idea what we're talking about, you should check out the Netflix documentary called Fire Festival. But here's the basic story. In 2017, there's this guy who wants to host a music festival. And he thinks it would be cool to have a party on a tropical island and get all of these big-name social media celebrities to promote it. So one weekend, he hires some supermodels to shoot this commercial. He pays the Kardashians and a bunch of other big-time influencers to post about it. And this thing goes viral. And then all these rich, young socialites buy tickets to this exclusive event. And when it came time for the festival people start to realize that this whole thing isn't exactly what it seems. And they start to suspect that it's a big scam. The bands that are promised on the lineup don't show up. People bought these exclusive VIP villas and find these crappy tents set up in the mud. People think that they're going to get these catered meals from world-renowned chefs, and instead they get cheese sandwiches on styrofoam plates. The thing is a disaster. And it was a lesson in the social media age that not everything is as it seems. And that sometimes in our quest for status and recognition and identity, people are willing to overlook the obvious and believe what they want. 
Yeah, and the most moving part is at the very end of the documentary where the guy who was a consultant for like is he's an event consultant and he um he's like he he's telling us the story all along of like being called in and being like this isn't going to work. This isn't going to happen. Trying to change things, telling them to cancel the event and they're like no no we can do it. We can pull this off. And then he's like reflective after it all goes down and he's like you know I look back on my own social media and he's like, my Instagram is like, here's a picture of my Instagram. Like, here's me, like, in Bermuda on this beautiful beach. He's like, my, I curated my own presentation of my own identity in this very... He was having, like, the most miserable experience of his life. And all he presented... And all he could do is put these beach pictures like, on saying, like, my job is the best. And yeah. in many ways, so he could... I mean, this is just... We, even those of us who are kind of reflective of this, the way those tools work is to kind of present yourself in a certain way that you receive recognition. So you receive likes, you receive retweets. Tweets. And um, it's just an interesting, interesting way to think about this. So the, there's a whole kind of tension in the age of authenticity, which is you be you, you do you, but you doing you, you need to get recognition. And what that will lead you to as you try to win recognition is that leads you to forms of conflict. So in many ways, we all then live, start living out a drama of Taylor Swift. Like Taylor Swift is the ultimate example of someone who constructs an identity and then lives with either fans or haters. And so all our songs are either about, well, either about a love romance. Or shake it off. Or, yeah, or, or about friends, like bad blood. Like mm-hmm. friends who, or people who didn't recognize her the way she should have been recognized. And so they become haters. And fans are people who give her the recognition she, she wants. And at a, at a kind of micro level, I think, especially with younger people, you be, that's the way you live out your lives. In the age of authenticity, we are given space to present our identity to the world. We are given the gift of freedom to choose for ourselves who we want to be. But because this rests solely on our own shoulders, there is a trade-off. There's a burden that we have to carry. And creating and curating identities, it's hard work. It's tiring work. And as the world moves faster and faster... As Andy explains, it begins to take a toll. This becomes an issue that the age of authenticity gives us this incredible space. And we've seen this in in a really kind of glorious, beautiful way for people to articulate their experience, be recognized for their experience, not be pushed to the margins as much anymore. For people um, who have been historically pushed to the margins to find their way to be able to articulate their experience. That's great. But it also has this downside of you have to continue to work your identity. You have to continually find ways to be unique. You have to continue to find ways to express that. And when you find yourself falling behind, and that happens quicker and quicker, 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 quicker. When you fall behind, what you feel is actually a despondency to curate yourself to go even have a conversation because it all is a dialogue so i actually think now this this kind of propels us into thinking about the church and we're a little far away from fred rogers so take us back there if we need to but um i actually think the issue facing the church right now most broadly is that the church as communal even institutions even as denominations is depressed Mm. that we have to Re, it is a time where we have to kind of represent an identity and we can't keep up. And the call, so I worry that the call, like the church has to change, the church has to change, it 
can actually come across as like you have to curate an identity new and then you're getting people who are already busy who are always every modern especially middle class person is always on the borderline of being thrust into depression because they're just they're trying to keep up and now you're telling all these people you're gathering and they're saying the church needs to change and their first reaction is yeah hell yeah it needs to change like i could help it would help me as i'm trying to work out my own life if the church changed and caught up to modernity a little bit that would be helpful but then what we have to say is okay so if the church is going to change we're going to all need you to volunteer more. We're all going to need you to give more. And then they're like, well, F that. Like, I'm barely holding on yeah. here. I am nearing the wariness of my own self, and now you're going to ask me to keep this institution going to do that. So I think then what comes over the church is a kind of sense of depression. I was with this pastor in South Dakota. I write about it in North Dakota, but this is the, the, this is the true version. The, the, the secrets, yeah. It was it was in South Dakota, and he that's what he said to me. He's beautiful church. They just had finished this addition, and um and you know five hundred people going to this church, and we had lunch together, and he's like, you know, if I had to describe my church, what I would describe as we're depressed. Like I can't get people to get engaged any more than coming on Sunday mornings, and then they come and then they leave. And he said these are great people, but they're exhausted these people aren't in brooklyn these people are in south dakota and they don't have time they don't have a time to add any more to this they still like the church they still want to be part of it but they don't they have, have anything have to give plates spinning they too many need, they don't need to add anything so else. when so when someone say the sin is from from the synod's office or something that comes and says you know what the church needs to change your analogy exactly right. They're spinning all these plates. They think, oh, hell yeah, that would be great. If the church could change, then maybe I could cope with all these plates spinning. But then they turn around and say, so for the church to change, we got to add another plate to your spinning thing. Yeah. And they're like, no. Yeah. Like, okay, whatever. And then we just kind of get caught in trying to find a model to engage people. So I, I think that becomes a, a, a huge issue. So there is a downside to the age of authenticity that it can create deep levels of institutional and individual exhaustion that can easily turn into depression. So what do you do about it? Well, um, this is probably... And if you, and by the way, if you can answer this and solve it, we are going to have a million listeners. We so <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> well, I mean, so... Yeah, I mean, at one level, I, I fear what we want is to find the consultant, to find the author that will give us the Prozac. Like, you know, like if we could just find church Prozac, that would be great. And in many ways, that it's that's what we are looking for. All these conferences are like, this is the next model. This is this model. If you find this model, we're looking for the there's, Prozac. There's some kind of easy fix. Yeah, some kind of... Technical solution. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which takes us out of our kind of romantic dispositions back into our rational ones which is taylor in his hegel book always says it's like we're always stuck between being romantics and being rationalists like we're always back and forth and the church plays that way as well it's like well we need to be more expressive communities that share our experience but we also just need the three points that will get things right you know like we're always moving back and forth so i think the issue is and we'll just have to kind of leave this for a teaser for another podcast but um i think one of the answers that taylor raises particularly in the ethic of authenticity that there's a german intellectual who i think has tried to answer this this guy by the name of hartmut rosa and rosa thinks that the issue the response and he's a social theorist as well and he thinks what ultimately happens 
because of other forces alongside this kind of need to curate yourself, curate yourself, is that um, it just becomes accelerated, that everything becomes faster and faster and faster. And that modernity means speed. And that speed, when you can't keep up, leads to depression. And he doesn't think that the move towards speeding up and to growth will ever get us out of this problem. So he wants to say what we actually need is not further ways to accelerate. Because you're just going into a black hole. You're just going to eventually not be able to keep up. Because this is the way capitalism works. If you sold this many units this year. You have to grow the next year. So it's it's the same phenomenon to the pastor. So we're going to catch you to speed and get you up 10% of members. Well, you're going to have to get 12% next year. And then you're going to have to get 14%. It never ends in this logic. So his argument is that what we actually need to do is return to what he calls resonance. These deep experiences where we feel overwhelmed with meaning. And he says, you know, like experiences of art, experiences of caring for children, where we just feel like, he says what he thinks modernity does to us is the live wire between the human spirit and the world gets cut cut, cut off. And in many ways, that's what depression is. You feel like things are lifeless and meaningless. There's dull. And there's dull. And you, you, want, yeah. you want to do something, but it, you, you lose that. So, um, But what we long for as human beings is to go to that concert and feel like we're connected to something or be at the Minneapolis Miracle. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, as one, there's cheering. There's communal events. Right. People talk about it for right. generations. Right, right. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, just ratchet that even back, holding your child for the first time. And you feel like... There's mystery in something in the universe. There's a way that the world talks back to you. Those moments of transcendence. Right. Yeah. So he calls those resonance, that we feel like a resonant connection with the world, that the world is talking back to us. And I think the church would do far better thinking about how we create spaces and opportunities for resonance than thinking about how we just can speed up to somehow become relevant. But this will be, what's interesting is the space to do either of those is opened up by the age of authenticity. The question is, do we follow, I wish I had a a good contrast here, but do we follow Taylor Swift and Demi Lovato's kind of way of doing this? Like, I'm sorry, I'm not sorry, I have to express my identity. Or do we find... I don't know, like, well, let's go with Tolstoy's or Dostoevsky's or the sense of encountering something bigger than us that leads us to even confess our own weakness and our own sin and leads us to confess our need for others um, and leads us into kind of virtues of humility and mercy. And so the question of the church needing to change is, do we need to change to be more like the fire Festival or do we simply need to be quite honest that we're sitting, that we're not, there's no supermodels here. There's, you know, like, there's, but there's other ways we can connect and have meaning and, and so forth. New Time Religion is a podcast featuring Dr. Andrew Root, produced by me, Derek Transgard. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend or two about our show. You can find out more about Andy's books at his website, andrewroot.org, or you can order them on Amazon. His most recent series focuses on Charles Taylor's work and the secular age. The first book, Faith Formation in a Secular Age, is available now, and the second book in the series, The Pastor in the Secular Age, is coming out on June 18th. 
Few Time Religion is a production of the Alter Guild Podcast Network, and you can check them out at alterguild.org for other great shows. New episodes of this show in our first season will be coming out every week. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week for another round of New Time Religion.